We have a God in heaven who has spoken. Hebrews 1 tells us that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. For he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So what is God like? And how does God accomplish his purposes? Look to Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the final and most complete revelation of God. Jesus is God himself. And so when you see Jesus with your eyes of faith, as we read in his word, when you see Jesus, you are seeing God. And when you see the works of Jesus, you are seeing the work of God. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And so everything that God does in human history in general, and everything that God does in your life in particular, is for one purpose, which is to display the magnificence, the splendor, the majesty, the beauty, the glory of Jesus. And so today we're continuing in our teaching series based on Matthew 1 and 2, a series called, What Child Is This? Seeing Jesus at Christmas. And that's what our heart's desire is, to truly see him. You see, we receive our faith by hearing. And so faith comes by hearing. And so hearing God's word is the means, but seeing is the goal. And so the aim of all of our hearing of God's truth is that we would see the beauty and the glory of God. And so being captivated, being enthralled by God's glory alone can transform our hearts and change our desires. And so the Bible doesn't say change yourself. The Bible says behold your God. And as you are beholding your God, as you are being captivated by him and his glory, the power of sin is then broken in your life and his spirit then begins to change our hearts, and our desires. And so seeing Jesus is the goal. And so this morning, as we continue reading, we'll read out of Matthew chapter 1. So if you don't have Bibles open yet, then do so now. Matthew chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 18 through 25. And our goal this morning as we read God's word is the, we would get, even if it's just a glimpse of God's glory, then it'll do us much good. So let's read Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. The Holy Spirit of God inspired Matthew to write down this account of Christ's birth. You see, Joseph, it says, was betrothed. He was engaged to Mary. Now, betrothals or engagement in the ancient Jewish context is very different from today. Engagement was a very formal, even a legal thing. And so this wasn't a casual thing to the ancient Jews. And so a legal divorce was actually required to break an engagement. However, living together and actually having sexual relations was not permitted until after the wedding ceremony. So understanding even just here briefly this context helps us see why it says that he knew her not until after she gave birth and then they came together. And it says that he had not known her yet. And so Joseph was not married in the full sense of the word, even though he is called husband in the text, because it was a legal engagement. But they had not yet consummated. So what you see here is Joseph finds out that his bride is pregnant. And so any man would assume, I mean, I certainly would, if, if my fiancé is pregnant and I know I'm, I'm not the father, the logical assumption is she's been unfaithful. And so it was a very natural assumption that he had. You see, he had no idea what the text says. Joseph didn't know that the Holy Spirit is the one that had conceived Jesus in the womb of Mary. And so he didn't know. He's using his own logic. And, but he's a good man. It says that he's a just man. So it's kind that he was upright and that he was a man of God, a, a faithful man to God and to his word. And so Joseph here is convinced that his, his well, fiancé has been unfaithful. He could have publicly shamed her by going through the legal process of divorcing her, but he didn't want to do that. He loved Mary. And he didn't want to shame her, even though he perceived her to be unfaithful. And so he wanted to divorce her, the text says, quietly. Now, the word quietly there refers to more of a, a private sense. And so he, he wanted to, think of it this way, settle the case out of court. He didn't want to go to court and make it a public thing. And so he was going to very privately divorce her. And so, but just stop for a second and just, can we just imagine how David, not, not David, rather, son of David, Joseph must have felt. Because he loved Mary. And he was engaged to her. And he had been faithful to her. Kept himself pure. He was a just man. And then she's pregnant. I mean, he must have been crushed. Just so disappointed. And yet, what you see here. It's because he loved God, he was then extending grace to Mary, and he was not going to shame her. In the middle of his pain, he did not seek revenge. But even then, his logic was still based on his own understanding. It was based on human reason versus God's revelation. And so oftentimes, we, we can make decisions that we think are good, but it's still based on our own understanding, and what we need is God's word to fuel our decisions. And so God was very gracious to Joseph, and God revealed himself to Joseph and gave him the truth. And he, he told him, as God intervenes, says in verse 
20 says, But as he considered these things, divorcing his fiancée, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so God revealed himself, gave him truth that Joseph didn't previously have, that this was a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is absolutely incredible. I mean, can you just think that an angel appears and tells you your, your fiancé is pregnant, but it's supernatural. There's been no father. Okay, that alone would blow your mind. Like, whoa, this is crazy. But, but then... He reveals more, and he says, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for you will save his people from their sin. The name Jesus means the Lord saves. And so he's telling him that this unborn child will one day save the world from their sins. That would be shocking for any of us. And yet, for a first century godly Jewish man, this was so much more. Remember the context, first century Jew, and a good man, a faithful man. And so he knew God's word. He knew the prophecies. He knew that one day God would send his Messiah. We, we looked at that last week, how Jesus is Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the one that God has promised to accomplish all of God's purposes through, to save the world from their sin. And now Joseph who's been waiting, anticipating the Messiah coming, is told, your fiancé is pregnant with the Messiah. You see, Joseph knew Jeremiah 31, among other verses, but Jeremiah 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. I will forgive the iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. And so this promise that sins will be wiped away. Joseph knew that. And so this must have been absolutely overwhelming to him as it should be for us when, when we read God's word and we see what he's about and how our lives, we find ourselves caught up in this incredible story that God is telling. We should equally be overwhelmed. And what you see here is Matthew quotes Isaiah 7.14, which is, about 700 years before Jesus was even born, he promised, he says in verse 23, he's quoting Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So again, seven centuries earlier, God promised that Emmanuel would come, that a man born of a virgin would be God with us, and his name is Jesus. God always keeps his promises. So as we continue to ponder the significance of this story here in this Christmas season, let me give you the primary truth and see if we can't better understand how this directly impacts your life and mine. So the main idea from this text is that Jesus himself is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is Emmanuel. So all of the prophecies, all the promises are fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And so why is this so important? How does this impact our lives today? Why is it so significant for us? I want to give you three reasons why this is so important for us today. Number one, God desires to be with his people. This matters to us because this story is revealing to us that as Emmanuel, 
it's proving, it shows us that God desires to be with his people. You see, one day God decided to create a spectacular world that reflected his creativity and his glory. He would take stars and he would fling them into outer space and they would shine brightly. And then he created just massive planets that our minds can't comprehend how large they are. And then he took the third planet that he put from this one star called the sun. And on this one special planet, what we call the world or earth, God then created wonderful, just beautiful things like mountains and trees and oceans and sunrises. And he was creating these beautiful and magnificent things because there were to be a reflection, just a display of how glorious and creative and majestic God is. But then he filled this incredible world with unique and interesting and elegant creatures, animals like cheetahs that can run fast and tigers and fish and dolphins and eagles. These incredible creatures that display his glory. But then, but then this incredible wise God handmade his prized creation people. He created Adam and Eve, and he gave Adam and Eve a perfect home, a beautiful, perfect home on earth, and he gave them delicious food to eat, and every time that they would take a bite of delicious food and and the flavor would explode in their mouths, they would then give God the glory and the thanksgiving for food, for the joy of tasting And he gave them each other so that they could enjoy one another. And all of their needs, everything they could ever hope for or need or want was supplied by the hand of this incredible, wise, and loving God. He shared everything with his children. He gave them. But most of all, most importantly, God shared himself with people. He created them to know him and to enjoy him. So every single day, God would go into the garden with his people. And God would routinely walk in the garden in the cool of the day so that his people could just enjoy his presence. He was just desiring to live, to be with his people. And God would would satisfy their souls. And then his people would respond to him. This loving and caring God would respond by loving him and by trusting him. And then that would lead to then obeying him. All the while they were to oversee this incredible planet that God gave to Adam to to run, to manage as a king under God's authority. What you see here is what God, this loving God, what he wanted most was to be with his people. And this incredible love relationship between God and his people, the way that people would then enjoy him, and God was enjoying this relationship with humanity, his prized jewel of creation would display the wonders of God's glory, a God who would desire to live with and be with humans. But sadly, God's people did not want to be with God. They did not want God's presence 
They rejected God in his presence, and they rejected God's good gifts, and they rebelled against God and did many evil things. At one point, they even built a huge tower to show off how impressive they are and to show how they don't need God, how they don't need God's presence, how they were gods to themselves, and they're rebellious, and they would hurt each other and do many evil things. And yet, despite all of this evil that was breaking this loving God's heart, God continued to love his people. And then out of, out of this world, with people that would reject and didn't want God's presence, God called one particular people to be his treasured possession so that he could live with them and be close to them. A particular people out of the world to them be a light to reach others so that they could then be close to God. And these people became enslaved by a hostile nation. And, and for 400 years, they were living, suffering. But their loving God rescued them and freed them from slavery. And then he gave them the special tent called the tabernacle, where God would live right there. He would be with his people. And they would have his presence right there with them all the time. And his people didn't want his presence. They didn't want God. They rejected him. And instead, they went after other idols. And they found joy in worshiping statues made of gold shaped like calves. And yet, God longed to be close to his people. And so he forgave them. And he brought them into a new land, a good land, flowing with milk and honey, where God could live with his people in this good land. And yet, they rejected his presence again and did not want him. They pursued idols. And yet God continued to love and, and desire to be with his people. And so eventually, years later, he let them build a temple where God could then be with his people right there, be with them, his presence among them in the temple. And they didn't want God's presence. They didn't want God. They looked for joy in idols. And they became evil again. And so enemies came in and destroyed them and took the survivors to a distant land where they would live as exiles. And yet God continued to desire to live with his people. And so he brought a remnant back. He brought them back to the land and yet there was still no king. And yet there was still, God's presence was not fully realized. And so there were promises that one day God would send Emmanuel, God with us. And they were waiting anxiously for that day when God would keep his promise. Because God desires to be with his people. And Christmas reminds us that Jesus is a fulfillment of God's promise to live with his people. And despite our evil, we have hope. And we can have eternal joy. Because we have a God that is constantly pursuing and desires to be close and live with and be with his people. And so what we see here in Matthew 1 is that God desires to be with his people. Number two, we see that God himself came to rescue his people. 
He desires to be close to us, but we reject him. And so God himself came to rescue his people. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. God himself came to rescue his people from their slavery to sin. And so here at Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation, which means to take on flesh. And so God the Son becoming a human. That's the point of Christmas. The eternal Son of God, the second member of the Trinity who was there at creation from eternity past, the second member of the Trinity, God the Son becoming a man. That is what Christmas is about. That's what we celebrate. Verse 23 is very important because it tells us that Christ, the Messiah, was conceived through a virgin. So the virgin conception. Now, I'm going to be transparent, you know, just for a minute here. I, I want you to know that I have not arrived and that I, I'm still like you, a follower of Jesus, still learning and growing. I have always affirmed and believed, of course, it's in the Bible. I've always believed the virgin conception and birth. But up until this week, it never really gripped me. Before this week, I would have said, yes, of course, he's born of a virgin. And I can maybe even give you some reasons why theologically, but I had never stopped to really pray and ponder and allow this truth to sink in deep and to let me just be, just my mind blown away by this. And this week, I praise God that I'm still learning and I'm still growing and I have a long way to go. But this week, I was overwhelmed by this, and for the first time, I felt myself really gripped by the absolute stunning truth of the virgin conception and birth. Let me show you just briefly what I feel God showed me, what I've learned this week, is, well, why does this matter? Why does it matter that there's this divine mystery of the virgin conception and birth? Well, the first thing that I discovered is that it shows that Jesus is fully God. You see, Jesus was not conceived in normal means like you and me. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. He was conceived in absolute holiness because the Spirit is holy. And so Jesus was conceived in, yes, a sinful woman, but he was conceived in holiness. And so this is showing that he's not just like you and me in some ways. He's distinct. He's other. And Jesus is God. And so the virgin birth helps us to understand that. But secondly, the virgin birth helps us understand that Jesus is fully man. He's a full, 100% human being. Jesus was born of a woman. He developed in utero just like you and I did. He was born by normal means. He is 100% human. So the virgin birth, if he had been conceived normally with the father and the mother, just like the rest of us, then in our minds, we would have had kind of a hard time understanding, well, how is he also God? If he's conceived the exact same way that we're conceived, then our minds would have a harder time just getting around. The, well, then if he's exactly like us, then how is he fully God? But on the other hand, if Jesus had just come down from heaven as a human being, not born of a woman, and then we would have had a hard time understanding, well, how is he human? He wasn't born on earth. He just came down from the heavens as a human. He's sort of human, but he's not really one of us. 
And so the virgin birth is brilliant. I was just blown away at God's wisdom, and God doesn't cease to amaze me. And the more that we read his word and ponder it, then we see how God's wisdom is just stunning. How, who could have thought of this? Like, seriously, who could have thought? Well, God did, because he's infinitely wise. And so what the virgin birth shows us is that Jesus is like you and me. He's human, born of a woman, and yet conceived by the Spirit of God. And so therefore, he is fully God. He is not just like you and me. He has no sinful nature like we have, because conceived in pure holiness by the Spirit. Jesus is the God-man. The only one who could pay the penalty for our sins because he alone is human and yet fully God with no sin. And so the wisdom of God here is astounding and how God made a way to rescue us from our sin. And the incarnation was the only way where God himself came to rescue his people. Now, this truth is actually very difficult for a lot of our friends. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus... This ought not be difficult. It's a, mirac- it's, it's, it's a miracle or miraculous. You can't say both words at the same time. So it is miraculous, but the reality is that people who don't have faith in Jesus have a very hard time with this truth. And so people from other faiths will say, well, I believe that God sends messengers. And so they affirm prophets and messengers would even say Jesus is a prophet. They would affirm that. But to say, now Jesus is God, now they have a hard time with that. Because the idea of a human being being God, they just cannot get their minds around how is it possible. God sends messengers. God doesn't send himself. Humans can't be God. And so they have a very hard time with seeing the incarnation with God himself coming as a human being. But this truth is very important, and we can't miss this. It's critical. This is a foundational truth that we cannot excuse. We have to believe and affirm this. It's kind of like when I was in university. I deeply loved my now wife, then girlfriend, Bonnie. I loved her and I wanted to marry her. And so after dating for two years, I went and I bought her a ring. I was in university. I couldn't afford much, but I, I sacrificed. I bought her a ring. Now, what would have happened? If I would have gone to my, my best friend and said, hey, I want you to go with, with Bonnie. And, and I told him, I want you to take this ring that I just bought. And I want you to put it in your pocket. And then take, take my girlfriend out to dinner and have a great time with her. And then at the end of the meal, I want you to get down on one knee and ask Bonnie if she'll marry me. And so go in my place. I send you as my messenger to go find out if she will take me, because I don't want to go by myself. I mean, that's kind of risky. I'd rather you go for me and be my messenger to see if she'll marry me. And if she says yes, come tell me, and that's great, we'll plan the wedding. What do you think she would have said? That's crazy. I mean, we laugh because it seems so insane. In matters of love, no one sends a messenger. When it comes to love, you do it yourself. And if you don't, you have to ask, do I love? 
God did not send a messenger to pursue those that he loves. God came himself because our God is love. No messenger would do. God himself became a human and came to rescue his people that have been running from him, rejecting his presence. God came down for us. From the beginning of time, God has desired to live with his people. That's what he's wanted from the beginning of creation. And when he finally came, when he himself came, he loved people. He healed the sick. He opened the eyes of the blind. He resurrected the dead. He loved people. And what happened? He was hated and he was abused. And he was beaten and whipped and nailed to a cross by the ones that he came to pursue because he came personally, because he loves. And on the cross, drawing in his own blood, he cried out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. There is no greater display of love than the incarnation and the crucifixion of the second member of the Trinity, God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And people ask, Christians, you're so arrogant. How could you say there's only one way to salvation? When you read the Bible and you understand this story and you see our sin and our evil and you see the beauty and the love of God, there's a much better question that I would ask that, that person. I would say, in light of our evil, why is there even one way? Why is there even any way that God would love us? Why would he even come for us except for his grace? Grace. To display his infinite, glorious grace. To save those who don't deserve it. Who will never be good enough. Who every day I pray that I go deeper into debt to God because that means I'm receiving more of His grace that I'm more aware of and conscious of. What this shows us is that nothing is impossible for God. He resurrected our Savior from the grave. And so I ask you today what are you facing? Is there something that you would say is so difficult? that you would even say it's impossible. Well, I have news for you. Our God specializes in the impossible. And so if you're facing something impossible, you're in a good place because your God in heaven has a plan to display his glory and he uses you and me to accomplish it for the praise of his name. Jesus is the author of life and he is the king of ages, the hope of glory, the wonderful counselor, the prince 
of peace and the morning star and the mighty God and the, our great God and Savior. That's who our Jesus is. And I can't guarantee you that your circumstances will change, but I can guarantee you this. If you truly would trust in Jesus, then you can experience his presence, which is what he wants. What he's always wanted, to be close to his people. And those who repent and believe in Jesus have his spirit, spirit of Jesus living in them. And that's all you need for lasting joy is God's presence in your life. And so on a daily basis, we focus on Jesus, and by faith, we kill our sin, and we behold the glory of our God, and we, we pursue Him because we, we know that when we don't, His presence becomes clouded in our lives, and we don't want that. So I love Pastor John Piper's words on this. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in and so we have a God who desires to be with his people, who came himself to rescue his people. Number three, we have a God who will live with his people forever. He's going to accomplish his plan. He's going to live with his people for eternity. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. God's plan has always been to live with the holy people. And so Matthew 1, we open right here in this book, and we see that he's God with us. And then if you fast forward to the very end, chapter 28 of Matthew, the very last phrase says, I am with you always to the end of the age. A bookend. He begins by talking about God's plan to be with his people, and he ends his book with the promise that he'll be with us forever. That we will live with him forever. We have this prophecy from Zephaniah chapter 3. We read it earlier in the worship gathering. Beautiful prophecy. Six centuries before Jesus was born. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. Fear not, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. So we see that this prophecy says, fulfilled in the person of Jesus, showing us the victory that Christ, our King, would accomplish by crushing the head of the serpent. He says he'll clear away your enemies. He will clear away our enemy, clear away our sin. The serpent will be finally launched into the eternal lake of fire, and our king will return in full glory. We need not fear, we're told, because he's mighty to save, and through the power of his spirit living in us and conforming us to the image of the Son, he says, the Lord your God is in your midst. This promise that one day God will be with you. We have that now. We have a taste of it. It's called the Holy Spirit living in us. And, and, and we experience that individually and collectively. But this is only the down payment. One day we'll experience it fully. Or we will be holy. Sin will be completely gone. And we will live with God forever. 
Read with me out of Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. This is in the future, but it's coming. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The dwelling place of God is with man. That's how the story ends. We will live with him, see him as he is, and enjoy him forever. And that is what fuels and motivates us to live for his mission. May we have the eyes of faith so that we can truly see Jesus, particularly in this Christmas season. And may we praise our God for sending him while, all the while, we're looking forward to that day. When we will see our Savior, our love, Jesus, face to face. Can you please pray with me? Our Father, we are humbled. We are so humbled by your grace. It is truly overwhelming. Thank you for sending your Son to be a human, to die on the cross in our place, to give us hope for today and hope for tomorrow. I pray for anyone right now in this room who has never repented, never placed a complete trust in you. I pray that they would right now give their lives to you and to turn away from their sin. May they completely trust in you. I pray you would help us to be a church that is captivated by your glory and that lives to know you and to make you known in this city. May we see you, Jesus, for that's what we need most. And we pray it for your kingdom's sake and for your glory, Jesus.